find Genesis 48 as we continue walking through the book of Genesis. Genesis 48, and we'll be looking tonight at the subject matter by faith, by faith. And you'll recall what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 11 about the Old Testament saints and what they did, they did by faith. Genesis 48, and let's pick up in verse one. It says, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. 
So he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will, will pronounce blessings, saying God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, folks, there's a strong connection between the beginning of this chapter and what we saw last week with the close of chapter 47 because as chapter 47 closed, you'll recall what was going on there. Jacob was evidently convinced that he was about to die. And so what was his concern? His concern at that point was that Joseph would promise to him that he would take his body back to Canaan and bury him there in Canaan in the land of promise and not leave him in Egypt. So that's how chapter 47 closed. And obviously, Joseph promises to do so. But Jacob doesn't die. Now, we can relate to that, right? With parents or grandparents of our own. How many times have you suspected that a loved one was about to die and all the family members got called in and you were standing around the bedside and everybody was saying their goodbyes. And then what happened? Your loved one rallied and maybe lived for weeks or even months more. You know, you know who I think of here in the church? I think of Margaret Kent. Margaret Kent battled cancer for about, I think it's about 11 years. And the last seven years, uh, they would keep telling the family that she was about to die. And I can remember going up there uh, to their home and everybody would be gathered around. I think of the next to the last time that happened, everybody was gathered around in the master bedroom and everybody was saying goodbye to Margaret and just how thankful they were for her testimony. And, and the hospice nurse was there and she said, I'll give her just, you know, probably a, a couple of more hours just by looking at her heart rate, her blood pressure, her other statistics. She's, she's probably got a couple of hours. Well, she rallied and lived for months. <laughs> And told George she wanted a red sports car, convertible sports car. So he went out and bought her a red convertible sports car. And, and boy, she would buzz all around town in that and go shopping. And the hospice nurse would come to check on her and she wouldn't be home. She'd be out shopping and she'd call her and say, Margaret, I've never had anything like this happen. When your hospice nurse is here to check on you, you're supposed to be here. Well, that's how it was with Jacob at the end of chapter 47. He rallies. 
And so Joseph, being the busy man that he was with the administration of Egypt and all the grain going to the people who were hungry, what's Joseph have to do? Joseph has to go on back down to the main area of Egypt and get back about his life. And so that's what he does between chapter 47 and chapter 48. Joseph goes back to, to his royal offices and gets busy doing what he's been doing. Well, at some point, word gets to Joseph, once again, your father is ill. By the way, folks, this is the first time in the Bible it is said of somebody that they are ill. This is the first occurrence. And Joseph gets word that his dad is ill. Well, apparently this time, Joseph fears the worst, so he takes his two sons with him. What's the point in taking his two sons with him? So they will get the patriarchal blessing. It's not uncommon to read from commentators that they believe that this is a high point in Jacob's life. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. It's interesting how this scene is picked by the author of Hebrews. There in the New Testament. He says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. Now, you might wonder why the New Testament says this right here is such an example of faith. Now, in answer to that question, I think it's because Jacob knows that he and his family are gods. He doesn't die without first testifying about God's presence, God's watch care over him, and he also acknowledges that the key to his family as they move forward will be what? Will be God. Well, the first thing I want you to notice with me tonight is Jacob's testimony reflecting God's grace. Uh, Jacob's testimony reflecting God's grace. Notice how Jacob begins his talk with Joseph. He goes back to when God first had appeared to him and God had made some great promises to Jacob. I'll tell you what, turn back to chapter 28 because let's, let's just go back to see what that was all about. Uh, you may have forgotten about it in the weeks since we've been in chapter 28. But look back at uh, verses 10 and following. Uh, we're told that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. 
And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised, until I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And so that's what Jacob is remembering here. He's remembering how God was with him. When he had set out from his parents' house to go to his mother's people. Now, let me get ahead of myself for a moment and point out how Jacob also ends his testimony that he begins here in verse 3. You look down at verse 11 and notice what he says in verse 11. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Folks, happy is the life that both begins and ends with God. And that's Jacob's testimony at this point. Now, I think it's remarkable to see for ourselves the changes in Jacob that the book of Genesis records. Jacob's not always been a very enviable character, has he? He was a deceiver. Along with his mother, Rebekah, they deceived Isaac into thinking that he was Esau so he could steal his brother's blessing. He, he did, in fact, steal his brother's blessing. He cheated his brother out of the birthright. Then he flees. He meets Laban, his future father-in-law, and Laban deceives him. The deceiver gets deceived. And then on the way back to meet Esau, he's scared to death and he has another fresh encounter with God and it seems to be then perhaps that Jacob truly becomes a more God-focused man. He started with a promise to serve God, but then what happened? He kind of just lived his life. Just giving God sort of a casual nod from time to time. So again, Jacob is not all that impressive of a man for much of his life. But I think, 
I think maybe more than just about anybody else in the Old Testament, he's sort of a reminder to us of ourselves, isn't he? Because we make all kinds of commitments, we make all kinds of vows, but then we get busy with life, and we go through a lot of life and just kind of give God a casual nod without really serving him like we said that we would. And so I think, I think in that regard, we're a lot like Jacob. I think Jacob is a real lesson in human character. But here we see him at the end and he's finishing on a high note. I think of the Apostle Paul getting to the end of his life. What's he say? I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. Notice what it is here that Jacob wants to pass along. He wants to bless his grandsons and his sons. His grandsons here, his sons in the next chapter. He wants to pass spiritual blessings along to them. Now, folks, what is it that we desire the most to pass along to our kids and our grandkids. Some people go to great lengths to pass along everything in the world to their kids and grandkids that in the final analysis won't mean a great deal. And yet they'll forget to pass along what should be the most important. Well, Jacob's wanting to make sure he passes along what's truly important. The greatest legacy any man can leave to his children and grandchildren is unswerving faith in God and the memory of a testimony that gives God all the credit and all of the glory. Jacob begins here with his testimony of God's faithfulness over God's past blessings. He talks about God's promise to increase his number and to make of him a great people and a great company of peoples and to give him the land. And so that's where Jacob begins here in the early verses of chapter 48. As James Montgomery Boyce points out, this is important because it's precisely at this point that some people begin to brag about what they've done in life. They might talk about some kind of business deal that they worked out in life where they got the upper hand on people. Or they might talk about how they finished top in their class or they might rehearse what a tremendous athlete they were, or they might start complaining and say, you know, if brother so-and-so hadn't done me wrong, I, I would have gone further in life than I went. Jacob goes on to talk about not only life's blessings, though, that came to him from God, and he's grateful for that, but he also mentions in verse 11 about his sorrow. 
Here again, there doesn't seem to be bitterness, just sorrow at the fact that he prematurely lost the love of his life, Rachel. Now, you remember Rachel, right? As soon as he met Rachel, he instantly fell in love with her. But then on the wedding night, because the women would cover their faces with veils and then go into a dark tent after the nighttime wedding, what had Laban done? Laban had pulled a fast one on him and married Leah off. Why did he do that? Because Leah was the older, and as Laban pointed out, it was the custom that they would not marry off the younger daughter until they'd married off the older. Well, what's Jacob do? Jacob works another seven years for Rachel, and the Bible says it was but a short time to him because he loved her so much. Well, here in these verses, he recounts how she died right after giving birth to, to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, and that was a heartbreaking time to Jacob. And so was he testifying here too that he seemed good and he seemed bad. He's had blessing. He's had sorrow. But through it all, what is it that he testifies to? That he's seen the faithfulness of God. God has worked in his life. And God has been present with him. Folks, I've, I've known even professing Christians who ended life uh, and maybe they were bragging about their accomplishments or maybe they were complaining about hard knocks. Some of them were just bitter because life hadn't turned out the way they thought. Life had turned out uh, hard for them. And so they're bitter, but not Jacob. Jacob's not doing any of that. Again, he's remembering the good times and the bad times, but he's not bitter, he's not angry, and through it all, he sees God's thumbprints all over his life and all over his circumstances. James Boyce once again points out something very interesting here. Earlier, we read all of the time about Jacob. But now in chapter 48, beginning in verse 8, it's Israel over and over again throughout the second half of chapter 48. It's Israel. The chapter begins talking about Jacob, closes talking about Israel. What's the significance there? I think it's that Jacob is truly being remembered as a changed man. Because when he had that encounter with God, when he was on the way back to meet his brother Esau and he was scared and he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, he became a changed man and God, signifying that change, changed his name. Changed his name from the one who is a deceiver to one who is a prince with God. 
And, and we see that, I think, being communicated here in the chapter. Before, he was not that impressive of a man. He was a liar, a deceiver, a cheat. He was immature. But as he's aged and he's about to die, what's being pointed out? He was definitely somebody different than who he used to be. Amen? Well, secondly, I want you to see tonight that Jacob gains new sons. It's interesting what transpires next in the chapter. There is a formal adoption that ensues. Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as replacements for Reuben and Simeon. I mentioned to you at the outset of our study on Genesis that one of the most respected commentators on the book of Genesis is a man by the name of John Walton. John Walton. Uh, as John Walton points out in his commentary on Genesis, the NIV, the NIV of verse 5 blurs what's going on here. It, it translates just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But as he points out, the verse literally reads, like Reuben and Simeon, they, they will be to me. Like Reuben and Simeon, they will be to me. Ephraim and Manasseh will be to me. In other words, they are now to become the firstborn sons of Jacob. And so later on, Joseph will get the double portion of the inheritance that would normally go to the firstborn son. First Chronicles chapter 5 verse 1 speaks of that. That Joseph will get the firstborn's inheritance. So in, in verse 5 of chapter 48 here, Jacob says, these two sons of yours are reckoned as mine and then any other sons that you might have will be yours. So what happens next in verse 8 when, when Jacob asks, who are these? Isn't simply interpreted by saying that Jacob's eyesight is failing. Yes, it's true. His eyesight is failing, as verse 10 will point out. But again, as John Walton points out, what we are entering into beginning in verse 8 is an official adoption ceremony. Akin to in a marriage today, what will a minister at the beginning of the service, as the bride and groom are down front, what will a minister ask? Who gives this bride? Right? He knows who gives the bride. Her father, the bride's father, standing right there. Who gives this bride? 
And so what he's saying in verse eight is not who are these? I can't see them because he's already met them. When they first went to Goshen, he's already met them. He knows who they are. But he's saying, who are these? Joseph says, these are my sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. This is the beginning of an official adoption ceremony. Then Joseph takes them over for a blessing and then removes them from Jacob's knees, signifying that the adoption is done. Now comes the blessing on them. Not the blessing of the grandfather, you'll notice, but the blessing of the father, the adoptive father, just as in Chapter 49, he goes right in to blessing his other sons. When Jacob blesses his new adoptive sons, notice what he does. He switches and gives Ephraim the blessing intended to go to the older. What's Joseph think about that? It upsets him. He corrects his dad. And then what's Jacob say? Jacob says, hey, I know what I'm doing here. Manasseh will also become a great people and his descendants will be great. But his younger brother will become the greater. Now, folks, this is nothing new in the book of Genesis, is it? Think about how often this has happened. Cain was reject Cain and his offering were rejected, whereas Abel and his offering were accepted. And then with the line of Seth, the even younger brother, he becomes the chosen line. Then Isaac is chosen over Ishmael, and then Jacob was chosen over Esau. Then Joseph was favored more than his older brothers. And now Ephraim is chosen over Manasseh. In fact, later on in Israel's history, Israel will from time to time in the Old Testament even be called Ephraim. The name Ephraim will become synonymous later on in Old Testament history for Israel itself. It would seem that we're being told something here on a couple, couple levels. On one level, we're being told that God looks not on the first birth, the physical birth, but we're being told God looks on the second birth, the spiritual birth. And in addition to that, we're being told that God doesn't look upon things the way that man looks upon things. Remember what Paul said about that in 1 Corinthians 1? Let me read 1 Corinthians 1 to you just, just for a moment here. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 27 Listen to what the Apostle 
Paul says there. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God looks at things differently than we do. Man would have said what? Cain, Ishmael, Esau, Reuben. God doesn't. Again, he, he chooses the next in line. And, and I think from a, again, from a redemptive history narrative, you and I have to say it's, it's not our first birth that matters. It's our second birth that matters. Well, let's not finish out tonight, though, before we return to talking about Joseph. I want you to see thirdly tonight, Joseph continues to live by faith. Joseph continues to live by faith. I stated at the beginning about Hebrews 11 saying that by faith, Jacob gave this blessing on his deathbed, but I also want you to see how Joseph is another man acting in faith. By consigning his sons over to Jacob, I want you to notice what he's doing. As Joseph's sons, if they remain Joseph's, they will have all Egypt at their disposal. One, one would assume that Joseph's sons born to him in Egypt will become royalty in Egypt. But as Jacob's sons, they wouldn't be viewed the same. Jacob was a Hebrew living in Goshen. And what were the Hebrews? They were shepherds. And the Egyptians, we've already been told, despised shepherds. So Joseph is making sure that his sons are counted among the Hebrews and not the Egyptians. Remember, their mother was an Egyptian. Joseph in Pharaoh's court married an Egyptian. If he had wanted to give his sons everything in the world, what would he have done? He'd have made certain they continue to be his sons. Folks, this is astounding when you consider what's happening. Because what is it that parents want for their children? They want the best. And by the best, they often mean that they want the best of everything that the world has to offer. They want them to have the best neighborhoods, 
the best schools, the best colleges. They want them to land the best jobs. They want their kids to do better than they themselves have done. Well, Joseph is pretty well assuring that this is not what's going to happen with Ephraim and Manasseh because they're not going to end up getting the best of Egypt. It really says a great deal about Joseph and his faith in God. The fact that he goes along with this adoption thing says he wants them counted among God's people far more than he wants them to enjoy the riches of Egypt. Who else does that make you think of in the Old Testament? Moses. What's the book of Hebrews say about Moses? That by faith, he chose hardship along with his people rather than enjoying the riches and the pleasures of Egypt. Why in the world would a man live that way? Well, again, as Hebrews says, it's because of faith. Moses did what Moses did because of his faith in the true and the living God. And it would appear that that's exactly what Joseph is doing here. Why in the world would a man not want his sons reared in Egypt and all the royalty that Joseph himself had set up. Because by faith, he wants his sons to be counted as Israelites with the people of God. Even if that means they don't end up with the riches of the world. He would prefer that they be rich in faith. And so Joseph himself becomes quite a testimony to us as well, doesn't he? By faith. I titled this study tonight, By Faith, because Jacob is acting out of faith. Joseph is acting out of faith. Any comments you want to make before we go to our prayer time? God has blamed Levi's with his donkey, correct? He Le said he was his own son, I believe, and so therefore, in order for these to be the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim were there. Right. Sure, sure. But as far as the firstborn, uh, like I say, Joseph and, in fact, Joseph and his two sons, they actually end up with three shares. And then Judah ends up with more too. In fact, Judah will, of course, the line of the Messiah will actually end up taking place through Judah. And as we'll see in chapter uh, 49, the reason Reuben and Simeon get counted out of the picture, Reuben, two reasons. You remember? What was the first? Because he lay with his father's concubine. And then remember what 
Reuben and Simeon did at Shechem. They killed all the men. Mm -hmm. So they so they lost what would have been their preeminence in the blessing. And we'll see that in chapter 49. And they get no land inheritance because right. the Lord is their inheritance. And they get scattered to all the different tribes. Mm -hmm. yeah. This chapter certainly says volumes to parents and grandparents. What do you most want your kids and grandkids to have? As people of faith, it shouldn't be that the biggest thing you have planned for them is the things of the world. Even if they have to give up the things of the world, you want them to have God and the things of God. If you look at the way the nobles did things in Egypt, and there was a changing of the guard, there was a slaughtering of the that, remnant. Not just the Egyptians, so, oftentimes in all ancient dynasties, they so would wipe out. You kind of get that feeling that could have left his sons and they could have had money and power mm -hmm. for as long as they lived. That was even the fear Mephibosheth had when David called for him. Uh, David was going to say from now on you'll eat at my table. Mephibosheth thinks he's about to be slaughtered because here's the new king in power. He's getting rid of his predecessor's descendants. So it was, it was common. 